Today's reading is taken from Matthew 12, 38 through 45. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, For those who don't know me, I'm Simon Pedley, one of the ministers here. And uh, you may have noticed from the reading that we're not exactly in jovial dinner party kind of territory here. Um, If you pick up your handout, uh, you'll see from the headings that the same is is true. How does a generation become wicked and adulterous? Are you looking forward to this sermon? Um, I'm slightly jealous of Richard doing the kids' slot, raving about resurrection. I'd rather do that. But Jesus says these words. And we need to listen to them carefully and take them seriously. Let's pray before we do. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you have spoken through these words in the Bible. Thank you that we can trust them even when they are uncomfortable. And so, Lord, this morning we we pray that you would open our hearts to be willing to accept hard words from a friend. Uh, For your glory's sake. Amen. Now let me ask you, I don't know if it's worth perhaps getting you to put a hand in the air, do a quick poll at the beginning of the sermon. Um, Who here has been a follower of Jesus for a little while, say more than five years? Hand in the air. That's a good number of us. Um, Who here have uh, Christian family, Christian parents? Yep. Uh, Who comes from a, inverted commas, Christian country so that uh, Christianity is in some sense part of our cultural background? A lot of people, including me, put their hand up all three times. Uh, All those three things are are true of me. According to Jesus, we could be in serious danger. For those of us in that situation, this passage gets us in its sights and fires off a bit of a, a warning shot. We could be in serious trouble if we've got a Christian background of some kind. Now, the flip side is, if, this, if that's not true of you, if you've started following Jesus more recently or, or your family uh, were not Christians or when you came to Jesus or you're from a country where Christianity is not particularly embedded in the culture, or even if you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus at all, then what Jesus says here is uh, a huge encouragement for you. Now, let me begin to explain all of this. At the beginning of our passage in verse 39... Uh, We're in Matthew chapter 12, page 978. Verse 39, Jesus is addressing what he calls a wicked and adulterous generation. That's a bit of an ouch moment, isn't it, if you're addressed in that way. And again, at the very end of our passage, in verse 45, the last sentence, he says, 
That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Not a huge amount of explanation necessary of wicked and adulterous. Wicked means bad, evil. Not in the, well, that's wicked man kind of sense of wicked. Bad, evil sense of wicked. And and adulterous means unfaithful in, in a marriage sense. And Jesus labels this generation in front of him as wicked and adulterous. Now, we're used to the idea of labeling generations, aren't we? You can, you can go through the 20th century, you can list most of the labels that people have given. Apparently, the, uh, there was the lost generation who fought in World War I, the, the greatest generation that fought in World War II, the silent generation born between the wars in the Great Depression, uh, the post-war baby boomers, and then it gets a bit less creative. You get Generation X and Generation Y and Generation Z. Not sure what, where you go after that. Um, Although others uh, apparently have said Generation X is followed by Generation Next, and then Generation Text. That sort of works, Uh, sort of. Um, But here's Jesus speaking to a a generation in front of him and says, look, I've got a label for your generation, and it's not particularly funny or snappy. You are the wicked and adulterous generation. And in many ways, this is the culmination of a, a couple of chapters where Jesus has said this kind of thing. So if you flick back just one page to chapter 11 and verse 16, this is where Jesus starts making these unflattering comments to his generation. Uh, Chapter 11, verse 16, To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Uh, In other words... They want Jesus to dance to their tune. If he doesn't conform to their rigid, preset agenda for him, then he's not welcome. And uh, in the intervening weeks between that point in chapter 11 and, and where we are now, Jesus has gone about doing good. He has taught wonderful things to the crowds. He has healed people. He has issued gentle invitations like the very end of chapter 11, verse 28, where he says, come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Wonderful invitations coming from Jesus. But the religious leaders of the time, the Pharisees, react by becoming increasingly hostile. They they kind of sniff around Jesus and his disciples, accusing them of breaking laws. They interpret all of Jesus' healings as the work of Satan. And then most ominous of all, in uh, the middle of chapter 12, in verse 14... They go out and plot how they might kill Jesus, which in time they did. Now, remember who these Pharisees are. They get such a bad press in the Gospels that they've become the pantomime baddies of the Bible. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the word Pharisee, I I have this instinctive sort of mental booing and hissing that goes on as if I was at the pantomime seeing the baddies come on stage. But these were the leaders of God's people. They represented the the religious establishment of the day. They taught and influenced the wider population with their views. Uh, The the masses relied on them for their instruction in lots of different ways. So in many ways, these were the official representatives of their generation. If anyone set the agenda for a a generation at that time, it was them. So imagine in our country today, if you uh, rolled together maybe the media and the police and the clergy all into one group, then you get some sense of the the Pharisees and their role, the kind of role these leaders occupied. 
And so it's these generation leaders that come to Jesus in our passage in verse 38, and to whom Jesus directs these harsh words about being a wicked and adulterous generation. Now, what is going on here? Uh, This is a serious warning, of course, from Jesus to a generation of people who should have known better. I remember a day during my first year at secondary school where everyone in my year was hauled together into the the school hall and uh, one of the teachers had been assigned to tell us that we were the worst year the school had ever had. (laughs) And we all filed out in silence thinking, gosh, that's quite serious, isn't it? I didn't realize we were that bad. And that's sort of the impact this is meant to have. Now, at school, we soon learned that every year was told the same, and so it didn't quite have uh, the cutting edge that the teachers wanted it to have. But this is not just Jesus losing his rag with the world and taking it out on one generation in front of him. This is Jesus saying something very specific about the attitude of the generation right there with him. The Bible recognizes that generations sometimes go one way or the other together, If you read the book of Kings in the Old Testament, sometimes a generation will be faithful to God, and then other times a generation will walk away from God. And so here we have the Pharisees representing and leading a generation of people who all, as a group, rejected and eventually killed Jesus. But they, of all people, should have been the first to recognize Jesus when he came and welcome him as their king. These these people had, you could say... Bible-believing families, Bible-believing communities, a Bible-believing country, a little bit like those who stuck our hands up at the beginning, those of us who've been Bible-believing Christians for a long time with our churches and our families and our uh, cultural backgrounds. And yet they had become, well, what, what had they become? We need to look at this passage and see what had happened to them. What made them a wicked and adulterous generation and what could potentially do the same for us if we're similar to them. And Jesus points to a a couple of aspects which helps to explain how it happened to them. First, through insincere inquiry in verses 38 to 40, and then through rejected privilege in 41 and 42. And then at the end, he gives a little picture to diagnose their overall problem. Uh, They have, he says, an unoccupied house in verses 43 to 45. So that's where we're going. We're going to look at all of those three in turn. First of all, um, insincere inquiry. And uh, we're in verses 38 to 40. And we might be uh, uh, forgiven for thinking Jesus is being unnecessarily harsh here on these Pharisees that approach him. Don't they sound fairly respectful in verse 38 when they come up to him? Uh, We're back in chapter 12. Verse 38, page 978. Pharisees come and say, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. They address him as teacher. Uh, Their question at first glance looks as if it could be genuine. Teacher, we want to see a a miraculous sign from you. By itself, that statement could be one of honest inquiry. You might think they're saying, Now look, Jesus, we're, we're honestly struggling here to make sense of things. Um, We're impressed by you, but we can't just quite get who you are. It would really help if you could do something like a miraculous sign in front of us now to help us to to weigh things up. But remember what we've seen in the past few chapters. There's been no shortage of miraculous signs 
done in front of the Pharisees. When Jesus healed a a man's shriveled hand in verse 13 of this chapter, they didn't deny it happened. They couldn't deny it. It happened right in front of their eyes. But they accused him of breaking the Sabbath and went off to plot his death. When he healed a demon-possessed man in verse 22, they accused him of doing miracles by the power of Satan. If they'd been honestly seeking the truth, the tone of Jesus' reply would have been very, very different. But as it is, Jesus basically says two things to them. He says, number one, you're not really interested in a sign. And number two, if you really want a sign, then look at my resurrection from the dead. Jesus isn't naive about them. He knew there was nothing he could have done to impress them. Their interest in him was fake. Their inquiry was insincere and and closed-minded. They'd already decided on the verdict ahead of the evidence or even in the teeth of the evidence. So this question of theirs is a sort of closed-minded jibe, not an honest inquiry. Um, This is, imagine the most uh, sarcastically anti-Christian person you can. Imagine them standing in front of you, pointing at you, saying, go on, go on, do a miracle. Go on, do it right now. Then, Then I'll believe, go on, go on, do it. Or maybe not so sarcastic sounding. So the same kind of jibe can be dressed up with a sort of facade of politeness and respect, uh, a tone of voice that drips with sophistication and intellectual authority. And no doubt that was a little bit how these guys sounded. In front of their followers, there's no way the Pharisees would have wanted to sound insincere. Uh, They would have sounded very sophisticated. So don't be naive. Jesus isn't naive about this. Not every polite-sounding inquiry into the Christian faith is an honest inquiry. We're not obliged to answer every ridiculing jibe that people put Christians' way. There may sometimes be a time to say to someone, look, it, it seems to me that you're not interested in finding answers here. We'd get a lot further if you were. Maybe sometime we can talk open-mindedly about these things, but Right now, I'm, just, I'm not going to dance to your tune anymore. So Jesus is justified in his response to them. A wicked generation is marked by its closed-minded inquiry. Jesus is unwilling to do miracles just on the spot, uh, by which they won't even be persuaded, such as their, their fixed prejudice against him. But look, he doesn't say these things without continuing his invitation to them. As well as saying to them, look, you're not really interested in a sign, are you? He still says, look at my resurrection from the dead. If you're, even, if you're ever going to be genuinely interested, look at my resurrection. So verse 40, he says to them, As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This generation will still be given that sign. There is still a gracious offer here, even in the midst of this confrontation. Jesus is not going to dance to their tune, producing miracles on demand like some kind of hired circus clown, uh, contractually obliged to perform conjuring tricks on demand. But the offer is never closed. He says, when I rise from the dead, there will be a sign, the greatest sign ever. And that is where you should look above all if your inquiry ever becomes sincere. I remember a time as a teenager when I was very confused about what I should believe about God and Jesus and about whether I could trust the Bible. 
And uh, there was a time when I desperately wanted a sign. Uh, I thought it would be great if God could just do something in front of me that would be tangibly miraculous, that would persuade me once and for all uh, in, a, in, a, in a very tangible way. And God, in his wisdom, didn't do exactly that. Uh, at least not in the way that I thought I wanted him to. In the end, uh, he took me to a number of things, but one was a sermon where all of the evidence in the Bible for Jesus rising from the dead was laid out and explained to me. And I remember sitting at the back of the church thinking to myself, I believe this. This this is true. This happened. And if it did, then Jesus is the Son of God. Then he is the Savior. He is the one I need. It all clicked and made sense at that point uh, anew for me. Look, God can do miracles. Of course he can. But far, far more than any other miracle, he wants us to look at the greatest one, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But the primary thing here is a warning. Those of us with Bible backgrounds are in some ways in the most danger of being like the Pharisees and walking away from it all. At Freshers' Fair this year, I've had a, a number of conversations with students at different universities turning up uh, aged 18 um, prepared to uh, arrive in London as students. And they've, some of them said, oh, no, 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 I'm not interested in church. Uh, uh, I was once in a Christian family. I used to get taken to church. I went to a Christian school. I know all about the Bible. I, I know it's not for me. And sometimes I've been able to have a little conversation and say, okay, wh- when did you make that decision? I don't know, when I was about 10. Okay. So you've given it deep, careful, adult thought then, have you? Right. Uh, you've decided at that great age of maturity that nothing could change your mind about Jesus, have you? Of course, I didn't quite put it that way, but those are the conversations (laughs) that we had. Um, But those conversations were a poignant illustration of the fact that some of us are in the most danger of walking away from Jesus when we've had this uh, Christian background of some kind. And so Jesus moves on in verses 41 to 42 to speak of rejected privilege, he says to these Pharisees, look, here's what's, what's really showing you up here. Other people in history have had much less evidence than you in terms of revelation, physical uh, evidence in front of them, and yet they recognized the truth when they saw it. So in verse 41, Jesus says, think of Nineveh in the time of Jonah. Nineveh, where Jonah went, the, the people of Nineveh had nothing to go on before Jonah arrived. They were hundreds of miles from Israel. No Bible in hand, no history of God revealing himself to them. In fact, they had every reason to reject the God of Israel. Uh, They were the the capital uh, capital city of Assyria. Uh, Their favorite pastime was defeating other countries so that they could laugh at the gods of those other countries and say, your God's worse than our God. And yet somehow when Jonah came preaching the God of Israel to Nineveh, Something about his preaching caused repentance, turning to God in Nineveh of all places. All they had was Jonah, but he was enough. And think of the Queen of the South, says Jesus in verse 42. She's better known as the Queen of Sheba. Uh, She too had no prior connection with God as far as we know. But in the days of King Solomon in the Old Testament, she famously made a momentous visit to Jerusalem to visit the king and learned from his famed wisdom. And something about Solomon's wisdom drew her to the God of Israel. 
All she had was Solomon. He wasn't Jesus. He wasn't able to do these miracles. He wasn't the full revelation of God. And Jesus delivers the the shocking verdict that both of these, the, the people of Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba, will fare better on Judgment Day than the generation of Israel right in front of him as he's speaking. These Pharisees in front of him had the greatest ever revelation of God, standing, speaking, doing uh, acts of power in front of them. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one whom their religion was all about. Over the last few chapters, Jesus has pointed out a number of great things that fade into insignificance beside him. He said that he's greater than John the Baptist in uh, chapter 11, verse 11. Greater than King David in 12, verse 3. Greater than the temple in 12, verse 6. Greater than the Sabbath day in 12, verse 8. All of these great things just pointed to Jesus. And our passage gives us two more. Jesus is greater than Jonah in verse 41. Greater than King Solomon in verse 42. So here is Jesus, the greatest ever revelation of God. God himself teaching and working wonders in front of them, under the eyes of the very people who should have recognized him out of all the people on earth. And they didn't. Now that is awful and embarrassing. Jesus wants to show them up and feel the sense of shame at being shown up by Assyria and the Queen of Sheba. Well, to those of us uh, in so-called Christian Britain, or Christian Europe, or Christian America, or Christian Australia, or wherever we're from with a Christian heritage. Let's take a good look at ourselves. The church worldwide is growing fast, and that is wonderful and exciting to see. But here, not so much. Pockets of growth, but lots of decline. From here, we we can look at the fantastic explosion of people following Jesus in places like Korea and China and South America and Africa. And perhaps Jesus would want us to look at those places and realize how shameful it is, how shameful it makes us seem when a country walks away from its privileged heritage. We've, We've had a Bible in English for 400 years. We've had a church in every parish and a parish for every inhabitant. We've had Christian scholars and politicians and Uh, industrialists. Our laws have been shaped by biblical ethics, and we're still living with the fantastic benefits of that in our society today. There are immense, immense privileges to being in a country where Jesus has had so much influence as he has here. Exactly the same concerning Christian families. It is an immense privilege to be brought up uh, by Christian parents, and yet it is often the privileged who can't see how privileged we are and who end up walking away from it all. And it is embarrassing, and it is tragic. Now, as we said, there is an exciting, invigorating side to all of this. Look, anyone, no matter where they're from, no matter what background you're from, you could be from Nineveh, the worst enemies of God's people. Uh, You could be someone like the Queen of Sheba from miles and miles and miles away. You don't need any Christian background or family to become a Christian. You don't need to come from a particular part of the world. You don't need to know anything in advance. You just need to see the revelation of God in Jesus. He's far greater than Jonah or Solomon or, or anything else you could come across. Don't be put off by the fact that sometimes those with the privilege of knowing Jesus have walked away from him. Jesus saw that happening all around him. You can come to him absolutely free. No no questions asked. But for the rest of us, make no mistake, nothing compares with Jesus. There is no better, clearer evidence 
somewhere else. When others were walking away from Jesus, the apostle Peter was one who saw sense. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is God in person. Nothing else compares with him. If you've been introduced to him at any stage in your life, then you are privileged beyond compare. Don't reject that. Now let's illustrate all of this. And let's do it Jesus' way. Because in the last few verses, he paints a vivid picture of what happens when a generation walks away from him. This is our final point. A house left unoccupied. This is verses 43 to 45. Now let me read these again. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. What do you make of that? Um, Almost like a mini wildlife documentary, isn't it? You can imagine David Attenborough whispering away, here we see an an evil spirit wandering through the desert. Seems a little forlorn. I think he's homeless. Uh, Poor little devil is scavenging around, trying to find somewhere to live. Uh, Since Jesus came there, something of an endangered species. But look, here come several more. And uh, perhaps they can reclaim old ground together. And, uh, oh, isn't that lovely? They've found a little place to live. That's fantastic. Although they do seem to be rather wrecking the place. Uh, Now, we, we won't make any sense of this, these couple of verses, unless we see it in the light of verse 45. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. This is not some kind of lesson on the life of demons. Uh, And it would be especially odd if Jesus was saying that all the people he's ever uh, had a demon cast out from uh, will end up worse than they started. That would be an odd thing for Jesus to say. We're not meant to think he's describing individuals here so much as a generation. This is Jesus' way of graphically illustrating everything that he said, describing how a wicked and adulterous generation can get to be in such a state. And the emphasis is on the empty house. That is what the spirits find when they go back. The evil spirit returns with his seven friends and finds a place swept and ready for them to just go in and take up residence again. It's not so much meant to be funny. It's meant to be a scary picture. I guess if you want a a contemporary picture that makes more sense to our, our own experience, you'd talk about squatters. You know, that horrific situation you hear about when people have been away on holiday and left a window unlocked or something like that, and they return. And when they get home, there is a squatter living in their house, taken occupation, and they've absolutely trashed the place. And so there's a battle, and the police get involved, and the lawyers are involved. And after a while, you've finally got your house back. The squatter is gone. And he's out there roaming the streets, looking for the next place to go into. And the next time you're on holiday, he comes past your house again. And he says to himself, I can't believe it. These idiots have left their window open again. And he goes back in. And this time he goes and gets his mates. Reinforcements. And he goes back into your house that has been beautifully cleaned up since the last time it was trashed. And Jesus says, that is how it's going to be with this generation, which leaves an empty house. Jesus explains a bit more about what he means about an empty house later in Matthew's Gospel. Um, Hopefully we can see it on the screen. Uh, 
This is chapter 23, verses 26 to 39. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. All of this judgment will come on this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who should be in the house? What is this empty house? What does it signify? It is an unoccupied throne where Jesus should be sitting. Jesus should be enthroned as king in the hearts and the lives of anyone who has ever encountered him. People who meet Jesus should say, blessed be him who comes in the name of the Lord and welcome him in for good. Jesus should stay when he's been welcomed. And in our society that has known Jesus, he should be king. In our churches, Jesus should be king. In our individual lives, Jesus should be the king. There's no good reason why a person or a society who's encountered Jesus should have an empty house like this. But if we know Jesus in some way and reject him, then our house is left empty and exposed and vulnerable. It may be swept clean. Jesus may have had a wonderful influence on our lives or on our society. Uh, Lives temporarily changed for the better. Societies made fairer. Families and relationships made more loving. Jesus has a wonderful effect on everything he comes into contact with. But in the end, if we have that and then reject him, we'll be worse off than we were before, he says, and liable to judgment. It is as if we've had an evil spirit removed or a squatter evicted, only to just throw open the doors and leave it wide open to happening again. The generation that knows God and rejects him is worse off than the one that never knew him at all. Now, what do we have here? As we finish, well, obviously we've got a warning, but we've also got a gracious invitation. Obviously, it's a warning, lest we be complacent. We mustn't duck this. We mustn't sit here this morning and think, we're okay, aren't we? We're in church. Surely that means we're immune to this kind of thing. It it is possible that even here this morning, there are some for whom being here is kind of a last gasp of cultural Christianity. Uh, And that actually Jesus is not on the throne in your life. There might be some here this morning for whom that is the case. You're letting go of the wonderful influence of Jesus in your family background, your cultural background. You're just here as the tail end of that, and you're letting go. Be warned by this passage. Don't leave it with an empty house. Think about uh, the, the great evangelical churches that there are at the moment here in the UK or in the US or wherever you're familiar with. Think of one or two that uh, come to mind as great churches today. How many of those were great evangelical Bible-believing churches 100 years ago? The answer is actually not many. And how many great Bible-believing churches from centuries ago still are today? Again, the answer is not many. What what does that suggest? There is a great danger that when one generation welcomes Jesus, the next doesn't necessarily do the same. Christian churches or organizations or mission movements 
often start with a, a faithful founding generation with Jesus enthroned at the heart of all that they're doing. But then after a generation or two, the, the house is left empty. Other things crowd in. And it becomes about something other than Jesus. He's no longer on that throne. It often happens this way. The first generation teaches explicitly about Jesus and the gospel. The next generation assumes things. And so the next generation forgets. What is explicit in one generation becomes assumed by the next and then forgotten by the next. And the rot sets in with the generation that assumes If we're a church that believes vital things about Jesus but only assumes them rather than teaching them openly, we can be sure that the next generation will forget. That is is the pattern. We must not allow our house here at Christchurch Mayfair to become empty. But also, amidst all of this, there is the gracious invitation. There is, of course, the invitation to those outside Christian circles, as as we've said, just come. Like the people of Nineveh, like uh, the Queen of Sheba, just come. But also, it is never inevitable that a Christian generation will fall away. It is never inevitable that when someone has rejected Christ, they'll stay away. You can always come back. Jesus is still saying to these Pharisees who hate him so much, watch for my resurrection. Some of that very first generation were were to become the first generation of Christians. This week I've chatted with a student who said to me right from the outset, I came from a Christian family I hated it. I've tried to live without God for a few years. But I've come to the conclusion that it's empty and futile and hopeless and pointless. And I need to come back to God. And he's asking big, big questions. He has enormous questions. They are feisty questions. But they're not insincere questions. They're genuine questions. And we're working through them. And he wants to come back to God. Um, I discovered a few years ago that my great-great-great-grandfather was a Baptist minister, and his name uh, was Richard Pedley. They called him Richard the Dipper, because he used to baptize people in the local pond. And, um, And here's something wonderful. As far as I can tell, in the direct line between him and me, everyone has been a Christian. And I'm so grateful for that. No one left the house empty. Not only that, uh, a couple of years ago when I first came across this chap, I thought I'd look up his old Baptist church and see what they were up to, see if it's still around. And I found their website and I opened it up. And the first thing that caught my eye was an advert for Christianity Explored. Isn't that superb? Uh, There's a church which has been faithful for generations. What a great model for us. Don't let the house fall empty. It's not inevitable. Let me finish by telling you about an acquaintance of mine from a few years ago, a chap called uh, Peter. Uh, he was, from a, uh, again, from a Christian background, but hated it, walked away from all of that. And he spent decades of his life as a kind of spiritual searcher. I mean, he took it to extremes. He was in the, the 70s. He was a bit of a hippie kind of searcher. And uh, he lived a, a bohemian, moving around kind of life with a caravan, and he would drive to various... Uh, spiritual festivals and investigate and think, is this for me? And he would end up concluding no, and he would go elsewhere. He was desperate for something that would explain life. But nothing clicked. Nothing made any sense. He married a, a girl called Rita, so it was Peter and Rita, wandering around the spiritual searches. And he basically had one principle, anything but Christianity. 
anything would, would do as the answer to life, but not Christianity. That was the one thing he wouldn't contemplate. Uh, it was the one thing he was absolutely sure from the outset was wrong, that he could write off. It was everything that was wrong with the old generation, the non-progressive, outdated stuff. And one day his wife, Rita, came home, and uh, he'd been wondering for a little while whether there was something different about her. And eventually she fessed up about what it was. She'd, she'd been going to a Bible study, and she said, look, I've found it. I've found what life is all about. I've found the meaning. It's Jesus. It's Christianity. Peter was deeply, deeply angry and deeply, deeply depressed and couldn't bear the thoughts that this could be right. But the more he watched his wife and the transformation of her life, the more he began to think, I've got to be open to this. And so he went along and went to her church. And when I met him a few years ago, he was leading a church. These things can happen. It's not inevitable. Uh, Jesus can bring people back from a wicked and adulterous generation. So let's pray for those that we know in that situation. Father, we thank you so much for these warnings that are timely and uh, painfully uh, realistic about much of society that we see around us and even our own lives. Help us to take them seriously. Help us ourselves not to be those who wander from the privilege that we have of knowing you. And help us not to uh, uh, lose hold of your grace that is continually offered to everyone who will come. We pray for those that we know who have wandered away from a Christian background, a Christian upbringing, a Christian cultural uh, 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 background. Please, Father, would you have mercy. Thank you that your uh, welcome stands. We pray that you might use some of us to welcome them back home. In Jesus' name, amen.